Carjackings have turned some of the neighborhoods in Cleveland upside down, and last night, Cleveland police finally made some arrests. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. We got lots to talk about. How are you? I'm good. Doing fine. Middle of the week, so you're starting to feel better. We're getting closer. <laughs> Only one more DeWine briefing to sit through, and then you can see daylight unless he has a special one on Friday. Hey, I'm happy. The weather is beautiful. I took the kids to the bus stop without a coat. It was amazing. Yeah, it's supposed to be 60 today, right? So I'm trying yeah. to figure out whether I could work outside today. You yeah, think I was thinking. Possible? I was thinking the same thing, but you know, but it'll be depressing because I can see the the grass coming to life, and it's like, all right, so we're gonna have to get the mower out. All right, let's begin. <laughs> How many Cleveland police officers could be disciplined as a result of a chase that killed 13-year-old Tamia Chapman in late 2019? And didn't an internal affairs investigation say police largely followed the rules in this case? Laura Johnston, I, I was surprised to see this yesterday because when we talked to Police Chief Calvin Williams in December, he said that, and demonstrated how they largely followed the rules and there were a couple of technical things they didn't do right. But this is a separate investigation. Yeah, so this is recommended by the city's Office of Professional Standards, and they're recommending that nine of the 10 police officers involved be disciplined. We don't know who this is or for what exactly, but it, this is a multi-step process. So the Civilian Police Review Board will review that investigation and recommend specific discipline to the police chief or the safety director. But they don't have to take the recommendations, and the Police Review Board isn't even going to talk about this until next month. They said they they wanted to table their review and they needed more time to review voluminous evidence before recommending discipline. So, but yeah, even when this happened, and this was, for background, this was right before Christmas, December 2019. It was a target on the west side, I think 117th Street. There was a carjacking and an off-duty police officer followed the car. Low speeds, it wasn't like a high-speed chase on 90 but then they got off in East Cleveland at Eddie Road. Tamia was walking from school to a Toys for Tots event at the East Cleveland Library with two friends. She got hit by a car driven by this 15-year-old boy that was being chased, and, and she died. And it's just a tragic, sad story. We even thought right after that happened that, you know, this was a dangerous situation. We understood the chase. It wasn't one of those things that you're like, what? Why are they doing this? So, And you're right. And I think it was just this past December they said that they found some technical issues, but minor violations, nothing big. Well, and the technical violation was there was a cop who was closer to the bad guy who got in the chase, but but didn't have the proper approval yet. But it it put the police eyeballs on the car they were pursuing. It, was, it wasn't like some renegade thing. It was he was there. The car was going by and he followed it to, to provide some some and so the chief was basically saying yeah we'll, we'll talk about it but it this it was not heinous and what the what they had done was pretty bad they they took a woman's car at gunpoint nobody knew who they were so it's fascinating we're talking about that the day after the arrest in the 30 carjackings that have tormented tremont and west park neighborhoods of cleveland because police repeatedly had those guys in their sights and and they did qualify for a chase because they had committed violent felony crime, but supervisors kept calling those chases off. So they terrorized this neighborhood for weeks. And now you have councilmen, Carrie McCormick, and to a lesser extent, Mike Polensic, arguing that the city has told criminals, you're free to do whatever you want. We won't chase you. So it's this, this very weird 
paradox because in the one case, we're going to have nine police officers basically disciplined possibly for following dangerous criminals that ended up in the death. And on the other hand, you've got council people saying, you're not doing enough chases. This is this is terroring our, terrorizing our neighborhoods. We're going to lose residents. Who's going to move here when you can't walk outside your house without having somebody put a gun in your face? I mean, I think it's a really slim line, right, between what's the safest thing to do. Because you you think about Tremont, like those are tiny little roads with, you know, houses and cars parked on either side. And like, I, I think a chase would be difficult in those conditions and dangerous. And and obviously these carjackers are dangerous. And so you just, you want to do the best thing for the most people, right? And and I think it's a discussion that's worth having about, you know, what's the policy and how do we keep Clevelanders safe? You could argue that the police waited too long to do what they did yesterday. I mean, yesterday they brought, they finally got fed up with this carjacking spree. They brought dozens of officers in. They got a helicopter in the air. They found one of the stolen cars. They got around it. They arrested the guys without incident. They didn't need to wait for 30 carjackings to right. do that. They could have done that after three or four. But in the meantime, people were, were terrorized by this, and it, it really made the neighborhoods seem unsafe. So interesting that this is all going on at the same time. We're going to do some examination of chase policy. You know, on the other hand, in East Cleveland, they'd have had, how many chases have they had this year? It's like 62 or something. And they uh, were the ones that said, you know, we want a we want a stricter chase policy. I don't even remember when that was, but it, it came off of the Tamia Chapman case. Right. So we have a, a real diversity of views on how to pursue criminals. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine want to respond to the alcohol-related hazing incident that killed a Bowling Green State University student? Jane Kuhn, I wish we had details of what happened here because we're talking about this almost in the abstract, except it's not abstract. A young man died. Right. We don't we don't have the details. It's really tragic. 20-year-old Stone Fultz from Bowling Green State University died in this, as you said, it's a suspected alcohol-related hazing incident at an off-campus fraternity house. But the, the governor had a phone call on Tuesday with university presidents around the state, and he also spoke quite firmly at his Monday briefing about how this, this should just never, ever happen again, that it can't happen again, and Ohio has to become a hazing-free state. So anyway, as I said, he, he was on the phone with university presidents on Tuesday, and, and then we talked, uh, Emily Bamforth was on a call with the um, Kent State University president to talk about that. I guess the presidents all expressed support for stronger penalties for hazing, and DeWine expressed his support for legislation that would expand the definition of hazing and impose stronger penalties for that. Now, there was a bill on this in the last legislative session that expired before they took a final action on it, and it's supposed to be reintroduced. In fact, right now, there's a news conference this morning about it with um, State Senator Stephanie Kunze. She's sponsoring the bill and sponsored the last one. The last one was, you know, unfortunately, was named after another student who died. It was called Collins Law after Colin Wyant, and he died at at Ohio University as a result of a hazing incident. That one involved nitrous oxide, and three people were convicted in, in connection with his death. But his family worked with Senator Kunze on this bill, and it's supposed to expand the definition of hazing to include forced consumption of drugs and alcohol and also increase 
criminal penalties. So Colin Wyant's mom, Kathleen, is supposed to join Senator Kunze this morning at this news conference. And, you know, they're supposed to talk further about it. Now, the university leaders didn't so much go into this legislation on the call that they had Tuesday, but they they also talked about their responsibility as presidents. And, and the Kent State president, Todd Diacon, said that you have to combat the culture of hazing through education, you know, including summer orientation. And I guess Kent has a first year experience course. And then they also work with fraternities and sororities to prevent this. But but he talked about, you know, changing the culture on this. Yeah, I, I do wonder what the value of the law is when the, the schools could stop this. The schools, if they did the job right, made clear to the students, you'll be thrown out the minute you're involved in a hazing incident. We have a zero tolerance policy for it. Do it during the the, the time they're coming to be indoctrinated into the school. The idea that we need a law to say, yeah, it's criminal to do things that lead to a death. It's kind of sad because that is the university's job. These are kids leaving home for the first time. And if the university's made it very clear, they will not tolerate it. You will lose your place in the university. You would think it would stop. I mean, you got to look at Bowling Green for this. What did Bowling Green do to stop this before it happened? It's not just the universities. It's the national fraternities, too. I mean, you know, it's been a long time since I was in college and I was in a sorority and there was no hazing in the sororities. But, you know, you always heard these stories about fraternities. And we've been told for so long from the universities, from the official organizations, like you can't do this. You're going to be thrown out. And I, I don't know what it's going to take because, yeah, you're right. A state law made by some legislators in Columbus, I don't feel like that's changing the mindset of the kids, right? right? It's one thing to say, you know, tell them at freshman orientation. It's not the freshmen who are doing this, right? It's people who have been indoctrinated because they had it done to them. So they're going to do it to that next class. And I don't know what it takes to break that cycle. You have had so many chapters kicked off campus. It's not like people get away with it when they know it happens. And I just, I don't understand what it's going to take to change that mindset and be like, no, we are not going to do this. We are not going to punish people who want to join our well, I, organization. I, I think it takes a commitment by the schools. I, I think criminalizing it, making the penalties worse, it's always the way people go. We got to do something. But it's the school's responsibility to protect it to the students. I mean, people are entrusting the university with the safety of the students and they're not doing anything or enough to stop it. And and. The idea that they talked about this in the call, what are you doing? I mean, you should be investing heavily in this. You gouge people for tuition. You got loads of money. Why aren't you spending some on trying to change hearts and minds on this? Right. And there has to be like a campus response, like student response, right? Because if people still think hazing is sort of cool, like then it'll never change. You have to, you have to completely change the mindsets of everybody in college, you know, in the fraternities, not in the fraternities, so that people will feel completely judged if they even tried to do it. And a new law in Columbus is not what does that. Well, you know what? I I agree with both of you. I don't disagree with what you're saying at all. But I think if they did have a law specifically saying you can't force someone to consume alcohol, they could use that as a tool in their 
effort to change this culture by impressing that. Upon Maybe, but you're not. Yeah. Supposed, you're not allowed to drink under twenty one. Like, yeah, these my, kids I mean, my point, Jane, is you're, you're correct. If they had that, they could say, "Look, if you do this, you could go to prison for three years." My point is, is they don't need this law to to get the people. If they wanted to get to the kids, if they wanted to really get inside their heads and stop this, they could. They don't. Yeah. Um, I mean, I it's my understanding that chapter has been suspended, but you know, it's too late. I mean, well, well, the other thing you could do: ban fraternities altogether. Why have them? You don't need them. Just end that that whole part of culture. It's not doing anything. That, that has lasting value. So if you really want to stop the hazing, say students, if you're in a fraternity and we hear about it, you're out of school. You know, take a dramatic step if, the, if that's what happens. I mean, the kid's dead. You know, the parents who sent their, their, their son off to school thinking he'd have a great life dies because of this kind of irresponsible behavior. You got to do something for real. And, and we, we have this conversation every time somebody dies. Oh, no, oh, no, discuss the law. But the colleges aren't doing it. They aren't stepping up to stop this, and it's in their hands. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Ohio's gambling industry rebound in February, and how did the Cleveland gambling dens do? Jane Cahoon, it's been very interesting to watch the fortunes of these things throughout the pandemic. You know, they did exceedingly well at points where I thought they shouldn't, and then they've done kind of poorly at times when I thought they would. <laughs> yeah, they, they do seem to be bouncing back. The the gambling revenue in February in Ohio was up $5.3 million over January, but um, they're still behind where they were a year ago before the pandemic hit. So the, the revenue, which is the amount of money that they, the House keeps after paying out the winnings, totaled $158.7 million at the 11 casinos and racinos last month in Ohio. So just for comparison, that's up from about 153.4 million in January, but a year ago, February, it was 171.4 million. So, and you asked about the Cleveland area dens, as you called them. The Jack Thistledown Racino actually did outperform last February. The revenue was um, 13.6 million. That was an 8.7 percent improvement over February 2020. But uh, at MGM Northfield Park, they took in $19.2 million, and um, that's the busiest racino in the state. But that was down 15% from, you know, a whopping $22.5 million they took in the same month a year ago. And then at the Jack Casino, which is a bigger operation with more gambling options, the, the revenue was $18.4 million. And that was the busiest of the four casinos in Ohio, but still that was down 1.9% from a year ago. Now, we're going to get a much better idea in a month when we see the March figures because the February business was still affected by Governor Mike DeWine's overnight coronavirus curfew, which didn't get lifted until February 11th. So March will be the first full month when they can operate around the the clock. But, you know, as you said, it's been a weird year. They they were actually like on a record pace before the pandemic. But overall, in the calendar year of 2020, business was down like 26% overall. But then they set monthly records in each of the months when the, when there weren't any closings or curfews. So Well, so and one thing's for sure, when we get into March and April, their year over year will be higher because they were shut <laughs> mm -hmm. down. Yes, parts yes. Of that. So they're going to look like they're having a magic hour 
once uh, those numbers come in. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Steve Loomis, the controversial Donald Trump-supporting former head of the Cleveland Police Union, facing some serious discipline? Laura Johnston, he just keeps coming back. You know, you think you're done with Steve Loomis. They oust him as union president, and Donald Trump's gone. And yet, here he is. We're talking about this guy again, Mr. Controversy. Right. He wrote some disparaging Facebook posts, including two about Cleveland Police's Black Shield Association president. So the Civilian Police Review Board on Tuesday recommended that he be suspended for six to 10 days. And Loomis is a homicide detective. So the background is that he made these several posts about the Black Shield president, Vincent Montague, after Montague spoke for the need for police accountability during a bar association event in June. And this was after the George Floyd death and protests. And Loomis said he spoke with a forked tongue. He said there was hypocrisy because he, Montague was saying that officers needed to be held accountable. But in 2013, he shot an unarmed black motorist in downtown Cleveland and got a one-day suspension. And then Loomis called former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, Martin Luther Kaepernick, and Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield, Baker Sharpton. He even made a disparaging reference about the funeral of George Floyd. And police got complaints about the post. So they looked at case law, the, the investigators looked at case law about the First Amendment protocols for social media about a public employee, but they decided that he was speaking in his capacity as a police officer, and there was a detrimental impact on his ability to perform his role. So they recommended suspension. Yeah, I'm having a hard time buying this, that that he's speaking as a police officer. I mean, he's got a private Facebook page, so he's speaking as a private citizen. I, as despicable as what he said is, he does have a right to say it. In this country, we may disagree. We may think what you're saying is horrible, but you are allowed to say it. I'm, I, I won't, I'll be surprised if this sticks, because it is private. How do you say... He's a police officer. How do you how do you say when he's on his Facebook page, he's speaking as a police officer? I mean, that's a really good question. I I haven't checked out Steve Loomis's Facebook page and these are down now from what I understand. But it's a good question. I mean, he has a very public profile, like everybody knows who Steve Loomis is. So but you you can't be punished for having a big profile. So, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. Again, this is a recommendation and it goes to the police chief who gets to decide. And then, you know, I assume that if there is a decision to discipline, there'll be arbitration. And, and we, we know how that goes. Sometimes it's really hard to get discipline to stick. Yeah, it's just a slippery slope. But if you decide, okay, he did this as a police officer, when does he speak not as a police officer? I, I mean, it's just, and who, who's to decide that? I mean, you know, if he did this, if he said this while he's in uniform, and he's not in uniform because he's a detective, but if he said this, while he's out interviewing witnesses in a homicide, that then he's speaking as a police officer. But when he's at home on his Facebook page, how how is that how is that I, speaking it, as a police officer? Just because people know he's a police officer, well, I mean, it doesn't seem like it maybe hit. Montague comments to me seem different than Colin Kaepernick. Like that to me seems more, you know, the Montague. It's him speaking at the Black Shield president. But you're right. I mean, it's still freedom of speech. You're basically saying that a police officer never has a moment where he can articulate what he thinks because they're police officers 24 hours a day. I mean, this is a kind of a frightening case. I, I get it. You want to you wanna stop somebody who's employed by the city in a high-profile job from saying idiotically stupid and offensive things. But, you know, Steve Loomis is specialized in idiotic and offensive things 
for years. Why, why suddenly are they trying to land on them? I always question these First Amendment cases, and I just don't see how the city can make the claim. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we have any clue as to why the Solon High School principal has been placed on leave pending some sort of investigation? Lord Johnson, this is a weird case. I should point out my wife works for the Solon schools, not in the high school, has no tie to this, but for full disclosure. Yeah, this is a really weird case, and there's nothing official from the school district or the city, but Principal Erin Short, who's still on suspension, she gave a statement through her lawyer that she believes a former student sent a fraudulent email, which set off this entire issue. The statement said the email sender created a fictitious account, used a false name, and falsely accused Short of inappropriate sexual conduct when she was vice principal in 2005-2006. And then the former student, according to Short's lawyer, hired a lawyer who confirmed that no illegal activity had occurred. The district has provided uh, a copy of the email, but they're not commenting on the case. The police are not commenting on the case. It just She's been on leave now, paid leave for close to a month. And I, I just, I feel bad. Like the first thing you hear when a principal, you know, someone in the schools are investigating because, you know, a letter was sent home. It was a big media case. It's like, oh, what'd they do, right? And I don't know how you ever clear your name, even if it was a complete false accusation. Well, I, I think one of the ways you deal with it is you don't accept anonymous charges. We have a long history in this country of the right to face your accuser. This isn't just an anonymous complaint. It's an anonymous complaint from 16 years ago. I, I, I have a hard time seeing how you suspend somebody for something like this. It, it just it's, it seems like you'd have some basic minimums to, to do it. If you get an email from somebody that doesn't want to reveal their name, that you get back to them and say, look, we'll keep your name confidential, but we don't launch investigations based on anonymous allegations. So we need to know who you are. We need to know what evidence you have. We can't just operate on this. It seems right. like a, a pretty serious injustice that the Solon School District is perpetrating on this principle. And, and I get it. You know, you're not going to take any chances with kids, right? Like the moment you hear there, was, there might be sexual misconduct with, with an administrator in school, that's something you should be taking seriously. But you're right. Like anybody could create any kind of email address and lodge any complaint about any teacher. Like that's bizarre. Well, and look, let's face it. Who, who's in high school? High school kids. They do goofy stuff like this all the time. If they got it in their heads that, hey, I can go onto one of those sites, use a phony email, make an accusation against my algebra teacher, then I won't have to take the test on Tuesday. Right, I mean, right. who, what student wouldn't do that? I mean, it's like, you know, you'd, you'd have to have some basic minimum standards for an investigation. And given the time lapse here, it, it just raises red flags about Solon's policies. I've never really seen anything quite like this before, where an anonymous dated complaint can um, disparage somebody so badly. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. At the same time that we are learning that First Energy is breaking ties with two of its Columbus lobbyists, we're hearing the State Utilities Commission audit into First Energy is expanding into a suspicious $4 million payment to the former commission chief from First Energy. Jane Cahoon, it's no week can go by without a discussion of First Energy. The, the audit into the $4 million payment is odd that it wasn't already happening. Well, there was an audit already happening. so. Okay, I'll first just say it's always a challenge to explain this, but I'm going to give it a shot. 
So we already know that Burst Energy is the subject of a number of different investigations, not just this federal corruption probe into House Bill 6, but by the Securities and Exchange Commission and on other fronts, including at the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, which has a few different audits underway. But this one we're talking about, they have an outside firm doing it. And today they're supposed to meet and decide whether to expand that existing audit to include reviewing these questionable costs that have been revealed recently. And that includes this very questionable, as you said, $4 million payment to an entity that that state officials have said is connected to former PUCO chairman Sam Randazzo. All right, all right, so so let, me, let me stop you right there, because th- th- this boggles the mind in some ways. We learned about that $4 million payment, what, last September, October? I mean, it's been a long time. And the minute it came out, we knew it went to Sam Randazzo, even though they've never specifically said it. And he resigned that day or the next day uh, with Mike DeWine calling him a good man. So wouldn't you, if you're the Public Utilities Commission, right then and there say, wow, we need to look at where that money came from. I mean, we're already doing an audit. We ought to look at that. Now, since then, more filings have come out. And the most recent one makes it sound like that $4 million was a bribe because it paid for a guy to do something, not what was described in his contract, but that benefited First Energy. I mean, that's kind of what bribery money does. And, you know, you just kind of sit back and go, why weren't you looking at this all along? This should have been looked at the minute it came up. But I wonder if because it went to their former chairman, they didn't want the attention. Yeah, I don't know that, you know, it's possible that this came up, but it seems like what they're really trying to do is to see whether customers, you know, were charged for you know, infrastructure improvements that ended up not being used for for that purpose. And the whole thing, I guess, could open the door to actually get refunds for people. So that might be the step they're taking here. Uh, It's not to say they weren't looking at that at all. But as you said, each week we start learning more and more about this payment. And as you said, the most recent filing said that by First Energy said that the money led to conduct corresponding to such payment and to the regulator acting at the request or for the benefit of First Energy as a consequence of receiving the payment. So well, yeah. we should also note that, yeah, you, you said Randazzo resigned after the FBI searched his, his home, but uh, he's not well, been he, charged well, with well, anything. What was interesting, um, he didn't resign after the FBI searched his home. He waited until the $4 million payment came out. Then he resigned. It was within Right. Days, it was all in the same week. week yeah. But I, I just I think this raises questions about somebody should be investigating the utilities commission. I mean, as the chief of that, he was doing bad stuff. I mean, as the siting board head, he was messing with the the wind farms, which was a first energy thing. I'm not entirely comfortable with the utilities commission investigating the utilities commission. It's almost you almost need a, a citizens advisory group to go in and give that place an enema. Because maybe our, our our utilities commission is not serving the needs of Ohioans. I, I just don't have confidence. And they've avoided a lot of spotlight throughout this scandal because it's been on Larry Householder and the corrupt people in the legislature and First Energy and their executive staff. But the utilities commission is supposed to keep order with utilities like First Energy. Where the hell was it? Yeah. Well, all I can say is that the PUCO staff want to expand this audit. And the audit is being conducted by an outside firm. So maybe there's an arm's length 
thing there. So I'm not trying to defend anything one way or the other. I'm just saying maybe we don't know all the details here. And it would as be, far as this, it'd be a lot more arm's length if Dave Yost, the attorney general, was running it instead of the people who are kind of in the center of it. I'm a little bit surprised that he's not doing that. You're yeah, listening to oh, his own thing. <laughs> we should also talk. They broke ties with two of their Columbus lobbyists. But they oh, yeah, yeah. Work. You asked about that. So they terminated the state registrations for two of their in-house lobbyists, according to these state filings. And, you know, that was effective on February 23rd. The thing is, we don't really know the whys of that. You know, all we know is that, you know, nobody's commenting, but, you know, they, they've said they're taking a fresh approach to a lot of things. So we thought it was worth noting to report that two of these guys who've, you know, done the lobbying for a while now, I think one about a decade and maybe one about six years are no longer doing that. Think about how flush they are. They don't have to pay lobbyists. They don't have to pay $60 million <laughs> well, for bribery schemes. I'm sure they still have other lobbyists. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, we're not getting to the last two questions. We have run out of time. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast. 